They say we can either learn from our history or be doomed to repeat it. And while history never really repeats itself, according to author and historian Margaret Macmillan, it does echo. Understanding history helps us to spot the parallels today and avoid the pitfalls of the past. This week marks Remembrance Day. Many of us will be wearing poppies, attending virtual ceremonies, and reflecting. Reflecting on the battles that were fought so that we could have the peace we enjoy today. For Margaret, it's a moment to consider war itself. We talk about how war can influence society and how Margaret wishes it was taught differently in school. She shares some of the lessons from the 1918 pandemic that will help us through this pandemic. And she reminds us that peace takes significant work, organization, and public support. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest this episode is renowned historian Margaret Macmillan. Margaret is an emeritus professor of international history at the University of Oxford and professor of history at the University of Toronto. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and an honorary fellow of Trinity College, University of Toronto, and of St. Hilda's College, Oxford University. In addition to her academic pursuits, Margaret is an award-winning author. Her books include Paris 1919, Six Months That Changed the World, which won the Governor General's Literary Award for Nonfiction, the Samuel Johnson Prize, and was a New York Times Editor's Choice. Margaret has recently published her latest book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us. I can't imagine a better guest for this episode as Canadians across the country don poppies for Remembrance Day. Margaret, welcome to Bright Future. Thank you for having me. Margaret, I want to start by asking you what compelled you to write a book about war, not about a specific war or the traditional accounting of what steps, stages, and characters create the history, but on war itself. For some reason, I've always been interested in war, and I'm not quite sure where it comes from. I think partly because as an historian of the 19th and 20th centuries, there's an awful lot of war in the history of those centuries, and you can't really consider the history particularly of the 20th century, without considering the two great world wars and then the Cold War and a whole host of, of other wars, the Vietnam War, the Korean War. But it's always struck me that war has been an enormously important factor in history, one that we need to take into account as we look at the past, because war has helped to shape the world, helped to change the direction of history, and has helped to shape our societies. To understand ourselves and our world, I think it's important to include war in what we study in the past. I also have a personal reason, and that's because I grew up after 1945, and I knew my father, my uncles, all of whom had fought in the Second World War. I heard stories from them. They didn't tell us the more horrific stories, but they certainly told us about the war, and we were aware of the war. Perhaps the first bit of international news I was ever aware of was the ending of the Korean War. It was something that I was used to. Both my grandfathers fought in the First World War, so I had a remote connection, perhaps, to that war as well. It was something that I heard about, not in any way of boasting about war, but simply it was part of the experiences of the older generations. When I was asked to give the BBC Reflectors, I, I was able to choose whatever subject I wanted. And I thought, well, I've been thinking about war on and off for a long time in various ways. I've always been interested in it. This is the opportunity to really focus on it. So that's what I did. And that's why there's eventually a book came out of it. Margaret, in the book, you talk about how the study of war and the impact of war is really not being systematically taught in schools, at least in the way that you think it should be. I'm not happy with the teaching of history in general. I think there's been a tendency to cut back on the teaching of history. 
which I think is a shame because I think in understanding the history, you understand your own institutions and values and the shape of your own society and its place in the world. When war is taught or the history of war is taught at high school, it tends to be just an episode. For example, in Canada, a lot of students will know about the internment of Japanese in the Second World War, but they won't know much about why that war broke out, what it meant, how it affected Canada, what Canada's participation was, how it shaped the world that came after 1945. I have a general concern about the teaching of history. It's very important to get students interested in episodes in the past, but context is always important. In history departments, there's been a turning away, and also political science departments, from taking war seriously as a subject because I think it's seen as something that is about power, it is seen as something that is military history, it's about battles and it's about weapons and it's about people in uniform. And that, of course, is not the case. The study of war is the study of war in its society and embedded in its society. But if you look at the hires in a lot of North American universities, they're not hiring much in the field of the study of war. And I just think that's a shame because war is something that has been present throughout the past in all sorts of ways, is present today, and I suspect is going to be present in the future. So I think we need to know more about it than perhaps we're learning at the moment. In North America, we're very sheltered. We've benefited from our geography. We haven't had tremendous wars on our soil, certainly in the last little while. We have had, obviously, people being part of wars, but it doesn't affect us in the same way that it does others. It is sometimes easy because of that lack of connection to forget that wars are happening around the world today and have been a very common and prevalent part of shaping the future of many people today. Do you think we're fooling ourselves in North America or the Western world to think that war is something that others do and we don't need to worry about it because our society has perhaps moved past the need to go to war? We are privileged in North America. We've been privileged by geography. Also, I think privileged by the fact that wars have tended, certainly in the 20th century, to be fought far away from us. It's not that we haven't fought, and many people in North America have fought, but North Americans as a society have not felt the impact of war in the same way that, say, Europe and parts of Asia and parts of the Middle East have felt. I mean, very, very few Canadians were killed by enemy action on Canadian soil in the Second World War. A few were killed by U-boat attacks. Very few Americans, I think it was probably about four or five, were killed by enemy action in the Second World War, and that was the result of a Japanese fire balloon that fell on the West Coast. The destruction of cities, the destruction of infrastructure, the deaths of civilians was not something that has happened in North America for a very long time. That has tended to make us think, as you put it, that war is something that happens somewhere else. We need to be aware that the world is very interconnected. I mean, the pandemic has made us aware of that. What happens in Wuhan actually matters eventually around the world. War is something that has become capable of delivering destruction over very long distances now. And there is also, of course, the possibility, as we've seen, of terrorist attacks, of guerrilla attacks from within an apparently stable society. And so I think we need to be aware that privileged though we are, we cannot entirely ignore the prospect of war. We shouldn't turn our faces away from it because it is something that's present and it's something that in some way or other could affect us even in the present. We tend, I think, in North America not to think much about war, although of course there are clearly people who do, partly because it's so far away, but partly I also think because we are making an assumption about ourselves that we have somehow moved beyond violent conflict. Of course, our societies still have acts of violence within them. We have a sort of complacency that war isn't something we do, 
war is something other people do, that perhaps we have progressed so far and so fast that we're not likely to go to war again and we don't get involved in wars. History should warn us, and history doesn't teach clear lessons, but it offers warnings, and history should warn us that other peoples in other times have had a very similar feeling. Before the First World War, Europeans, by and large, felt that Europe had developed so quickly, and the 19th century was an extraordinary century for Europe. It was a fairly peaceful century, but it was also a century of enormous material and political and social progress. And a lot of Europeans had come to the conclusion by the decades just before 1914 that Europe was so advanced, so civilized, this was a term they used in those days, that war was not something they did. They thought that war was unlikely. In fact, most people probably thought that war was not just unlikely, that it was improbable or impossible. Look what happened to them. We just need to remember that. You can be very complacent, and sometimes your complacency can be misplaced. We just need to be a little bit more aware of what's going on in the world around us and the possibilities. What we don't fully understand is that war is something that people plan and they sometimes deliberately make, but wars can also start by accident. It's important to remember that. You get both sides or different sides armed. You get tensions rising. You get political leaders who perhaps aren't as good as they should be or who use violent and inflammatory rhetoric. And an accident can happen. You get a situation like we get with forest fires where you've had a very dry summer and just a tiny thing will set it off. Someone lighting a campfire, someone throwing a cigarette out of the car will set it off. It's quite possible that the 1914-18 war, the First World War, could have been avoided in Europe if it had not been for the accident of the Archduke getting himself killed at Sarajevo. And that proved to be the little spark that set off a whole chain of events, which took Europe in five weeks from a long peace into all-out war. We just need to be aware that there are, at the moment, hot spots in the world where there is a potential of accident. In the South China Seas, there is a competition going on, and it involves military equipment, involves ships, it involves airplanes, a competition going on between the United States and China for influence. They both have military equipment there. There have been incidents already where Chinese and American warships have got much too close to each other, and that is dangerous. And you can imagine, I think, or we should imagine, what would happen if someone shoots down a plane by mistake or sinks a ship by mistake? What will happen on each side? Will the leaders be able to be calm in the face of what I expect will be demands from their own publics if they do something? I'm not saying this is going to happen. But I think we always need to keep our minds aware of the possibility, just like we should always be looking out for forest fires. This episode will be released just before Remembrance Day in Canada, certainly the most important day for most Canadians in thinking about war and thanking our soldiers for their contributions. It's a day Canadians are primed to think about war and the way that war affects our society. How important do you think these kinds of ceremonies are for understanding the role war plays in the peace that we have today? It's always good to have a moment where you stop and think about the past, think about how we got to where we are. And that's what Remembrance Day can do. And I think it's also good to have a moment where we stop and reflect on how we can avoid war in the future. Avoiding war, limiting war, these are things that take work and they take organization and they take public support. Remembrance Day is, for me, a time where we can focus on some of the thoughts we have about war. Of course, we remember the past, and I think that's very important. We remember those who died in the wars that Canada fought in the 20th centuries and those who have died and supported peacekeeping in the more recent years. Very important to remember those people because they are people who have done things for the rest of us, and we should remember that and pay tribute to it. 
But I think what will happen over time is how we remember and what we're remembering is bound to change because the world changes and the memories of the past get further away. Having these moments, I think, where we come together is a good thing. Thinking about how Remembrance Day has changed, I can remember being a young man and being part of the Remembrance Day ceremony as an air cadet, dressed up in my uniform, standing out in the rain, surrounded by dozens of veterans. Many of them were dressed up in their uniforms in full regalia and really thinking about remembrance. And the idea of remembrance was very easy to grasp because you could see on the faces of the veterans that they were remembering. They were brought back to the friends, the relationships, the experiences that they had in the war and in shaping and shaping our history. Today, there are fewer and fewer of those individuals. Even the wars that we have been part of in the last couple of decades have included fewer active soldiers. The visual representation of remembrance that we have from these Remembrance Day ceremonies seems to be on decline in a physical sense in terms of the numbers and individuals who are doing that. How do you think these ceremonies are going to need to evolve as the makeup of our veterans changes? The passage of time always changes the ways in which we remember things. It is very moving when the veterans are there. I remember being at the big anniversary of D-Day a few years ago. I was very lucky to go with the CBC and there were veterans there and you knew that it was probably the last time they'd be able to come for it because most of them were very old and it was something to look at them and reflect on, on what they'd been through. But I think the content of how we remember will be changing. And as you say, there are fewer and fewer veterans and I think what we perhaps need to remember is the other ways wars affect people. Wars affect civilians as much often as they affect those who actually fight. Many people in this country will have experience of war, will have lived through violence, and will have had families who were affected by wars. Remembrance Day can become a time where we think about war, about the horrors of war, about the costs of war, and also perhaps look a bit to the future and think about what we as Canadians can do to try and make sure that there won't be war in the future. It's a moment. And there are many other things that we need to do, of course, but I think having such moments can be good for people and for a country. Your book does a really compelling job of presenting war as an important and critical aspect of the shaping of societies. You highlight some of the aspects in terms of the way in which it has changed it. You don't shy away, obviously, from the terror or trauma of war. But in many ways, some of the examples that you talk about contribute to a better society or have contributed to progress in society. What ultimately should we understand about war and its impact on where we are and where we're going? One of the things we need to understand about war is that just what you said, the impact that our societies have been shaped, of course, by what's happened in peace. They've been shaped by economics, by demography, by geography, by politics, by ideas, but they've also been shaped by war. And I think we need to remember and understand that. It's one of the many paradoxes about war. Wars can bring real benefits to societies. And of course, you would not choose to get those benefits in that way because the cost is much too high. But it is paradoxically, one of the things that will come out often of great wars are improvements. The greatest social equality in the 20th century, and the fewer gaps between the very rich and the poor in many countries came as a result of the two world wars. 
I think that was beneficial for society. I think growing inequality, as we've seen recently, is not good for social cohesion. Scientific and technological advances have been made in wars which have benefited people in peacetime. And often those scientific and technological advances are made because in war, governments and societies are prepared to bear the considerable costs of developing them. One example I often give is penicillin. How to create penicillin, this hugely important drug, which has saved now millions of lives, was discovered before the Second World War, but it was deemed too expensive to make. And then when the Second World War came, it no longer was too expensive, and it began to be produced on a mass scale, of course, for the soldiers, but was eventually used for civilians as well, with the consequences, the beneficial consequences we know. What we would like to be able to do, I think, as societies, is make those efforts in peacetime rather than having to have a war to force us to focus on things that we need to do. It is true, perhaps, that other great catastrophes do the same sorts of things. I mean, I think the research that has gone on in the COVID-19 pandemic, it has been extraordinary and wouldn't have taken place and the resources would not have been put into it without the pandemic. What the pandemic has done, and wars often do as well, it makes societies look at their own failings where they're not serving their people well, where there is not justice, where there is not a fair distribution of the things that people need to survive and have decent lives. The COVID-19 pandemic has done something very similar to great wars, making us aware of where our societies are falling down and, and where they need to be improved. We wouldn't choose to have a pandemic to do this, but the consequences in the longer term may actually be beneficial for societies. I want to pivot a little bit to the pandemic, and thank you for raising it. We do often hear that we're on a war footing. You've extensively reviewed the history in and around the 1918 pandemic. I saw an interview with you at the very early days of the pandemic, and to be honest, it haunted me, and it has sort of stuck with me. One of the things that you said is that a big difference between the 1918 pandemic and today's pandemic is that back then in 1918, people were much more used to death. I've always wanted to know what you meant by that. And what do you think that that tells us about our response to the pandemic today? How societies respond to great challenges, I think, depends very much on what those societies are like. In the 14th century, when Europe was hit by the Black Death, which had catastrophic effects on Europe, historians now think maybe as many as half the Europeans in that middle of the 14th century died as a result of the Black Death. European society then reacted in various ways, often in authoritarian ways, and often people turned to religion because it was a deeply religious society. After 1918, with the great influenza epidemic, people reacted because of the way in which their world was. We have to remember back that even before the First World War, people were used to the deaths of young and vigorous people, and of course of older people, far more than we would be used to today. I mean, there were simply not cures for things like tuberculosis or cholera or typhoid. They were just beginning to be discovered. A number of childhood diseases, measles, smallpox, chickenpox, German measles, mumps, would often kill people. People died as a result of getting an appendix, where today, of course, they wouldn't die. Even in peacetime, societies around the world are more used to death in their midst. But of course, the First World War brought death on a huge scale. We will never know how many soldiers were killed in the First World War, maybe 9 million. And we'll never know how many more civilians died because they couldn't get enough to eat, because they got diseases, because they were so weak. Death was there on a very large scale. And the understanding that death could not always be prevented, that there weren't sudden cures, 
was also there. In a curious way, people in this period with the Spanish influenza at the end of the First World War absorbed it and tolerated it and accepted it more than we are prepared to accept the COVID-19 pandemic. Because we, so many of us, have grown up in a world in which science and technology provide very quick answers to challenges such as pandemics. We don't live in a world in which people die unexpectedly. Women don't die as much, certainly in developed countries, in childbirth as they used to. Children don't die as much as they used to of what were once common childhood diseases. How societies react to pandemics really depends very much on the understanding of death and the probability of death and the nature of those societies. We're reacting in a different way. And of course, we have the great advantage of having science and technology, which are highly developed, which can move very quickly. We have the prospect that there will be ways of treating those who have COVID-19. And we already know that there are ways of mitigating the effects of the illness. And we have prospects of getting vaccines, whereas people in the past didn't have those prospects. And so they reacted and, and understood pandemics in a different way. As a historian, does it feel like you're living through history or a history that you've studied? It does rather too much at times. And I know as a historian that history doesn't repeat itself and that there are no exact parallels with the past. But there are things that, as Mark Twain said, echo. And there are things that are similar. I talked earlier on about the complacency that we have, so many of us in the West, about war, that it's not something we do anymore, that it's something that happens somewhere else in the world, because we've had this long period of peace since 1945, is very like what Europeans were feeling before 1914. And most of them had also had a very long period of peace. That complacency is dangerous because you're not looking out for where you might suddenly get yourselves into trouble. I do sometimes think of the 1920s and 30s when you had a rise of populism and you had a rise of hostility to others who weren't like you. you. You had a fear of immigrants in a number of countries in Europe and indeed in North America. And that worries me because we know that that can lead to populist demagogues getting into power who promise everything to people who support them and then, of course, can't deliver. And we know that can be dangerous. And we know that it can be dangerous when you have great power rivalry because great powers tend to have great resources and they tend to have great armed forces. That can be dangerous because rivalry and when you get the rhetoric escalating can put powers into positions where it's difficult to back down. I see signs in our own times. I mean, we're living in turbulent times, which remind me of other turbulent times. It doesn't mean it's all going to turn out badly, but there are things that certainly about the present concern me. There is the old saying that if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. What are the sorts of things that you hope that we've learned from the history of pandemics and of war that you hope will help to guide us through the current pandemic? One of the things I think I've learned, if I've learned any lessons from history, which I always wonder about, is that societies which have strong social cohesion and have good leadership are likely to deal with crises better than those that don't. That societies that are strong when the crisis hits and which are fortunate enough to have good leadership, are more likely to weather those storms than ones that don't. For example, Russia in the First World War was a deeply divided country with a very shaky regime and at the top uh, inadequate and, and often poor leadership. And basically the regime collapsed and Russian society went through a dreadful period of revolution and civil war and is still feeling the consequences of that today. Whereas Britain and France 
and Germany, which were stronger societies, came out of the First World War. Of course, much changed, but they did maintain themselves as societies. And I think you can see the same thing in the Second World War. Britain pulled together, Canada pulled together, the United States pulled together, and did so very successfully. In our present circumstances, I think what we're seeing around the world is that those societies where people trust their leaders, and I think crucially the leaders trust their people, they can be authoritarian societies, but nevertheless, I think there has to be some degree of confidence in the leadership and the people in each other. And in democratic societies where you have that level of trust and confidence, have done better at handling the pandemic than others. The nature of the society matters. The fact that South Korea, Vietnam, Japan, Taiwan have dealt very successfully with the pandemic says something about those societies. And of course, it helps them that they also had the SARS epidemic, that they already were prepared for these sorts of epidemics. And people had already internalized the idea that you wore a mask when you felt that you might infect others, which we're only beginning to get around to in the West because we didn't really get all that much affected by SARS, although there was an outbreak in Canada. What we're also seeing is the importance of good leadership. Angela Merkel has been very successful in Germany because she has spoken very bluntly to the German people. She's not made promises she can't keep. She's told them when things are difficult. The Germans as a whole have responded very well to that. By contrast, the British government has not spoken clearly to the British people, and a lot of people in Britain have lost faith in the ability of the government to lead. We see the United States to the south of us, where you have a president who has actually undermined attempts to contain and manage the pandemic. My impression in Canada is that, in fact, the different levels of government have worked well with each other and have shown leadership, and that on the whole, Canadians understand why they must take certain steps. That says something about the nature of Canadian society and the nature of the leadership the country has, both at the municipal, provincial, and federal levels. They seem to be working pretty well together. We know it's not perfect, but I think when we compare Canada to the United States, the differences are very clear indeed. What makes you optimistic as we gather to commemorate war and we work our way through this pandemic that we will be able to get through this with a minimum amount of disruption and that we may avoid the accidental collapse into war? I'm generally an optimist, but I hope not a blind optimist. And I think if you're an optimist, you need to be realistic about the world you're living in. Because if you're not realistic, you're not going to recognize what might need to be changed. And so I'm an optimist, certainly, that people, if they are given a chance to understand the issues, and if, if they are spoken to reasonably and not simply given slogans, people will respond. There is a huge capacity among human beings for cooperating with each other and for altruism. I mean, we've seen some of the worst side of human nature in this recent pandemic, as we do in other crises, people looking out for themselves, people behaving selfishly. But what we have also seen, We've seen neighbors coming together. We've seen people volunteering. We've seen people in a number of countries, countries I know, like the UK and, and Canada, setting up food banks, trying to help those who, who, for no fault of their own, are finding themselves in very straitened circumstances at the moment. Neighborhoods setting up community organizations. I mean, I've, I've just come back from the UK, where I was for some time because of the pandemic. And in my neighborhood in, in Oxford in the UK, there was a neighborhood organization which set up a group and offered to pick up medicines for people who couldn't get out. I mean, these things sprang up spontaneously and quite effectively. We need to remember that. Governments need to understand that citizens are capable of altruistic action and encourage that. It's something that we should celebrate. We need to understand 
that the world is a tricky and complicated place if we're looking at it internationally, but that doesn't mean it's unmanageable. And we need to look back at the past and look at times when there have been strong international organizations, and we still have many of them today, and there has been international cooperation. We need to take heart from the past as, as well as being discouraged by it. We need, of course, to understand when things went wrong, but we need to understand also when things went right and what we learned from it. A lot of what we learned is still shaping our lives today. The World Health Organization grew out partly of the great pandemics that used to affect the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but was set up after the Second World War and has proved very successful in sharing information and helping to control pandemics and deal with disease and illness around the world. We need to keep reminding ourselves of that, but we need to do so in a realistic way. I don't mean that we should think that, you know, the sun is going to shine and rainbows are going to flourish everywhere. We need to work at it. Margaret, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I very much appreciate your perspective. And as I've said, the book does a compelling job of presenting the way in which war does shape us. It's a great opportunity to think about that as we prepare for Remembrance Day. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for what were really thoughtful questions. I've enjoyed talking to you very much indeed. You've been listening to Bright Future from the Conference Board of Canada. If you like what you hear on this series, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. Our production team includes Andy Joy, who's our writer, and Sarah Mels, who supports in audio editing. Ideas were contributed by Michael Jones, Rob Collins, and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett, and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion or research. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, research, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.